Okay, here we go. February the 23rd, 2020. Lecture discussion number 93 on the book of Joel Daniel Revelation Ecclesiastes. So, again, I'm lumping them together, as I think I should, as is always the norm. Uh, Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. The five chapters of Judges is going to be unfinished. I'm not going to be able to finish it. I can't finish anything. It's impossible. Just have another cursory, shallow, all too brief foray. Now, cursory, shallow, of course, is a redundancy. Don't write me. So all we did was kind of go into it a little bit. It is a significant prophetical event, and it's literally true, and yet it is a profound, hidden inside of it, marinated in it, is this incredible testimony of the person of Jesus Christ. And I get asked it routinely whenever I do these kinds of subjects, what do you, highly trained religious professional that you are, see as the most important of the important revelations uh, with respect to specific passages or a book of scripture, in this case, the judges. But it's, it's usually common no matter what the subject matter that I'm in. In other words, they say to me, make a list. I want to know what you think is the most important and what is the order of the most important of the most important. And apply the list again, in this case, to Judges chapter 17 through chapter 21. I could just say Judges. But I want to make sure that you know that 17 is in there. Lots of people don't know. They, they get interested in 19 to 21, and they do not notice 17 and 18. So I would place Judges 17, 6 at the top of the list. And, of course, that gets me to 2125 as well. Those would be, that's where I would say to you, if you get that, then things happen for you in the book of Judges. That's 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, and 21, 25. There's four of those. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he thought to be right in his own eyes. I added a little bit in there, but that is 17, 6. That's 21, 25, 18, 1, 19, 1. And judges, that is the number one thing that has to be solidified before you begin even reading that, those passages. You establish the totality of meaning and the consequences of this description that is applied to Israel. At this time in Israel's history, they are in their infancy. So it, when you have control of that, I get, as much as we can get control of anything in the Bible, I submit this is the prime mashal, the threshold of the account. You go into the book of Judges through the door of that verse. And, and once this condition, this description, again, that's given and, and you, it's correctly interpreted, how you apply it to Israel, and you've got it. And remember, Judges 18.30 says that the grandson of Moses is in here. Jonathan. Exodus 2.22.18.3. So that's how young this nation is. The grandson of Moses is there. And not just the grandson of Moses. The grandson of Aaron. Judges 20.28, Numbers 25.7. So I have Jonathan and Phineas 
They're present. That's how close they are to Moses and Aaron. Jonathan is the son of Gershom, who was the son of Moses and Zipporah. So Jonathan likely knew Moses. Phineas knew Aaron. Phineas is the son of Eleazar and the son or Eleazar, Eleazar and the son of Aaron, who is the son of Aaron. Aaron is a high priest. Moses is the prophet like unto Christ. Deuteronomy 18:15. And these two are alive and in the nation during the time of the book of Judges. And these days where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what he wanted. There was nothing. There was no right or wrong. Right and wrong, truth and non-truth was decided by each individual. Keep in mind also that the Ark of the Covenant was there. Judges 20:27. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there at the time the book of Judges was occurred. And who's hovering above the blood-stained mercy seat? That is the Lord God Almighty of Israel himself. And obviously Israel, in an incomprehensibly short period, has descended into chaos, madness, and insanity. That's where they are. And everyone is a muck. Everyone. They have the Ten Commandments, the stone handwritten by the finger of God inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And everyone is deciding what is right in their own eyes. Everyone. Let me repeat. Did I say everyone? Does everyone include Jonathan and Phineas? I, I obviously, yes. I submit, yes. The grandsons are full participants into this descent into the muck. And all of that, like I said, even with the Ark of the Covenant, the preeminent symbol of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And Jesus Christ is the King of Israel. The commandments are in there. The, the rod of Aaron, the manna. They have that. Phineas goes to get, he sees the Shekinah glory. On every feast day, if he's doing it. Israel has degraded into darkness and they've been given over to a debased mind. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And I note the rapidity of the collapse. Grandsons. I can't repeat the Shekinah glory is above the mercy site. Is it enough? If you didn't see the the Shekinah glory, you saw the glow. Israel could see the glow. So once you've established that context, that substrate, to use that word over and over again, now or then and only then would be more applicable. Can you have the correct deductions? Can you now properly deduce what is happening in Judges 17 through 21 chapters? you'll get the accurate order and more of the meaning. Excuse me. And obviously, Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 explains why the nation of Israel rejected the triune God over the mercy seat as the authority 
And then what did they do? They rejected the triune God, the Shekinah glory. They did not want the Shekinah glory to be the king of Israel. What did they do instead? They begged and they pleaded for a man, a created being, to be king over Israel. That's what comes next. That's 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. We don't want the Shekinah glory. We want a man, a king, a created being to be king. Uh, let's go ahead and read that really fast. First Samuel 8, 1 through 9. See, there's an order here, right? Everything builds. Judges has an impact on Samuel. Samuel has an impact on Judges, First Samuel. Israel demands a king, it says in the heading of my particular commentary. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old and he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second bar, his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his way. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted just, justice. So the sons of Samuel, train wreck. This is a great lesson for you. Those of you who have sons, they could go any, any. Grandsons are terrible. Watch them carefully. You never know what's going to happen. And I'm just slightly kidding there. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. I get told that all the time. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. I added other. In other words, they're going, please give us a king like all the other. We want to be like the pagans. We don't want the king to be God himself. We want a man king. But the thing, verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people. Is that good or bad? If you think it's good, think again. Try again. You want this? Remember what what the substrate of judges brings us here. All that dysfunction. Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. Now, where does that take you in the New Testament? They have rejected Christ here in First Samuel. According to the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So they want a man to be king. Now remember, judges, all that stuff, keep that in mind. The conditions of judges have given us and laid the foundation to Samuel here, 1, 8 through 9. Specifically for Samuel 9, 15. Uh, it just talks about what the king is going to do. The control that he will have, the power that he will have, the the burden he will put. Anyway, uh, let me read 9.15 really fast. 9.16. 
Tomorrow, about this time, God says, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That is the conclusion. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Not just Benjamin either, for those of you who have been here, but the land of Benjamin and also from Jebeah. 1 Samuel 10:26. So we've just gone through Judges, for those of you who endured that, where we have this incredible evil that has never been seen before in the nation of Israel happen at Jebeah, and the Benjamites supported that evil. And there's a tremendous war, and the Benjamites were almost completely extinguished. But there was a, uh, it was a time of, of horrifying evil, and it was carried out by the Benjamites and the sons of Belial, in the town of Jebeah. And God says, tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And this man happens to come from Jebeah. And not just a man. He's not just a man. He's a mighty man of power. He tears an ox apart. Two of them. None was more handsome than he among the children of Israel. He was taller than any of the people. First Samuel 9, 1 through 2. So why... Did he give him Saul? Because that's describing Saul. Obviously, the Lord God of Israel sent the nation back to Judges 17 through 21. You reject me. I'm going to give you a Benjamite from Jebeah. And not just any Benjamite. He's taller than anybody. And he can tear an ox apart. So now connect that to the sons of Belial and the great evil that they did to the concubine, to the harlot of the Levite master. What did they do to her? Saul as king, he goes and saves Jabesh Gilead. You remember that. That was the town that refused also to help get rid of the evil of the sons of Belial, the sons of Satan. And they were slaughtered, completely tore, uh, destroyed, and they're Women, 400 of their women were taken to give to the Benjamites in order that Benjamin might be saved as a tribe. And Saul goes and saves Jabesh Gilead, 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. And he utilizes the same process that the Levite master used in that he, with the Spirit of God upon him, he cuts, it says cut in your Bible, I'm sure, a yoke of oxen into pieces, but that's not the actual word. The actual word is that he takes a yoke of oxen as one man and divides it into pieces. And he takes those pieces and he hands them to messengers and those messengers then go out through the territory of Israel, 1 Samuel 11:7. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the same process as Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Saul does it. So you can see this relationship between these two passages. So this mighty man by himself, as one man, tore the yoke of oxen apart and that's reminiscent to what else? Who else tore something apart by his own hands? Samson did. That's right. Absolutely right. Judges 14, 6. Right before we get to Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. So I want you to start looking at the order of things. Whenever you read a passage in the Bible, read what comes after that and read what comes before and find all the connectivities. The language is unsurprisingly similar. Here comes a grandson. Beware. 
the language is almost ridiculously the same. Uh, see, the grandsons cannot be trusted. They can't be. Look what happened. You as grandmother could solve this really quickly with a pair of gloves. <laughs> okay. Where was I? I'm a professional. The language is so similar. Pay attention to how similar it is. It's extraordinary. The Spirit of God came both to Samson and to Saul, and both tore apart these animals with ease. So study Samson and study Saul together. Their, death are, their deaths are particularly interesting. See what Saul does. The witch of Endor tells him, be in obedience and go to your death. Samson, in obedience with a young man, goes to his death. You study those two and you find tremendous uh, connectivity to them. You'll also notice if you compare the passages that There is this component of the people weeping. The people weep in both uh, 1 Samuel and in Judges. (coughs) And as just the final piece of this, am I at the final piece? Not quite. Tomorrow. Never pass God saying tomorrow. When he says tomorrow, it's always something to do with the crucifixion of Christ. Not always, but likely it is. Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. Jabesh Gilead will be saved. I will give you Benjamin and the sons of Belial into your hands tomorrow. All of 1 Samuel 11 is directly the result of Judges. And it resolves, 1 Samuel resolves, um, if you want to call it a resolution, it's more like a consequence. And that the result of the rejection of Christ as king, you have rejected me. The result of that rejection uh, first as the light, the flame of life, you've rejected that and you have chosen instead a Jebeah Benjamite man. And then the what happens in the New Testament, where it's a New Testament compliment of we're going to reject the flame, the light of life for a Benjamite Jebean man. Somewhere in the old in the New Testament is the complement to this, and I hope you can recognize the invisible God, the Shekinah glory, because at Matthew he seventeen he exposes that he is the light of life. There he also says it in John uh, eight twelve. The invisible God became visible and the God-man came to Israel. And what happens? He is rejected. And who did they want in, in his place? They wanted Barabbas, a thief and a murderer. John 18:40, Mark 15:7. Not this man, but Barabbas, they all cried out. Once again, they rejected God for a man, and then when God added humanity, they rejected God as a king there. How's their track record, Israel? Remember, when they reject God, who's there? How close are they to Mount Sinai, Egypt? Not this man, but Barabbas. 
They were asked by Pilate. What did Pilate ask them? He asked them, do you want the king of the Jews? And they said, no, we don't want the king of the Jews. Okay, so I'm just trying this kind of my wrap up of judges. And that's all I'm going to do. We, we've got to leave that behind now. The five that are one, look at the five chapters of judges as a unit, and but also separate the five pieces. And uh, keep going in it. You'll find incredible things. I have hardly even touched it, especially the aspects of the New Testament that are the compliments. We're finally going to return back now to Daniel, where we once were a while. What was it, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, so that we can grasp as best we are able the blessed prophecy of Revelation 1, 2, and 3. So we've got Daniel. If you remember, we were at Daniel 10 and Daniel 12. And so what do we do to figure out Daniel 10? We go back to Daniel 9, which is what we're going to do. And we have Revelation 1, 2, and 3. To understand Revelation 1, 2, and 3, you have to see what happened in Revelation 4. And then that will take you back this way. Why is he doing Revelation 1, 2, and 3? Because of Revelation 4, 1. And what does this have to do with Daniel? Well, hopefully I can demonstrate that. There's a blessed prophecy. If you understand the prophecy of Revelations chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, uh, then you have the blessing. And you, if you understand the prophecy of Daniel 12, or, which is the whole book of Daniel, frankly, uh, then you are counted among the wise. So the blessed wise will understand 1, 2, and 3 in the book of Daniel. And I would submit to you that you are of all people of all of history, now is the time to be in the blessed wise. And as you know, this process is basically a comparison. I'm going to put these side by side, laying Daniel and Revelation side by side. I'm going to overlay them like a template, the books of Daniel and Revelation. And of course, keep in mind, Joel is hovering nearby. And of course, obviously, so is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is included for many reasons. I'll give you two really fast. Why is Ecclesiastes part of this Revelation 1, 2, and 3 in Daniel 9, 10, 11, and 12? Or all of Daniel? Because of this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does he mean? You could say, useless of useless, all is useless. What's he mean? That's Solomon. He also says, remember your creator before the silver cord is removed or loosed. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. Your time is short. And remember before that cord is removed. Then the dust, which is the body, then the body, which he does not differentiate between the word dust and body. Then the dust will return to the earth, the ground as it was, and the spirit of the breath of life will return to God who gave it. That's Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 8. You can say all of Ecclesiastes 12, but primarily 6 through 8. And you can see Genesis 2, 7 there. Then the dust will return to the ground as it was, and the spirit of the breath of life will go back to God, return to God, who breathed it. 
So that's two reasons, or, or not two, that's one reason of two parts in it. Now here's the second part. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. When you see good and evil side by side, where are you in the mind? You're back in Genesis. Absolutely right. Hopefully you can discern why Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 8 and 12, 13 through 14 belong with Daniel and Revelation without me prompting you. But if you need a small hint, never raise your hand. I will assume that it's none of you that need a small hint. It is only the vast Internet audience. Notice, let me repeat it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Where does that send you into the New Testament? Where in the New Testament is the conclusion of the whole matter? God will bring judgment. He will. He will. The Genesis 2:7 and John 11:25 context of Ecclesiastes 12: good and evil. That should direct you. I hope. You're welcome. Revelation is the conclusion, is the judgment of the whole matter. What's left to now decide? What is the definition of the whole matter? How does God define the whole matter? Anyway, what we're going to attempt is primarily Revelation, the unsealed book, Revelation 22.10, and Daniel, the sealed book, Revelation 12.9-10. That's our consideration. We're going to evaluate it as one complete unit with two parts. Even though it's necessary to know about Joel and Ecclesiastes and other passages, Zechariah. But it's, we're going to try to get it properly placed at each book within a known chronology. And that's hard to do. And by that, there's an order. Now, it's not necessarily nice and clean, but there is an order. And, and we got to, the object here is to try to get the order to be known, the known knowns, if you will. There are unknown unknowns also, as you know. Okay, so here we're going to start. The baby should be asleep in a second along with everyone else. Don't worry about it. Watch him. Just as soon as I write this on the board, he'll drop like a rock. I have Daniel 9.25-27. And this is what's discussed there. Seven weeks. Now, weeks is the same word as seven. You can call it seven sevens. So weeks is to be interpreted in many different ways. And it will be obvious that it is seven sevens. And I have 62 weeks or sevens. And then on top of that, I have one seven. Is he still awake? We'll get him here in a minute. Oh, I've lost everybody else but the baby. (laughs) 
<laughs> Here's how it goes. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So we have lots of things now to think about right off the bat. I have seven weeks, and then I have 62 weeks, and then I have seven. One seven. A seven, a 62, and a one. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall, not, shall be cut off, but not for himself. Cut off, not for himself. What's the obvious clue now, or question now? If not for himself, who? And we have this, this cut off. I'll get to that in a minute. And the people of the prince shall destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that's the temple. Then he, the prince, the destroyer, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So I got another week. Uh, Where shall we put it? Another one week. Or another one seven. But in the middle of this last one week, so the the one week now is divided into two pieces. He, the prince, the destroyer, shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. So this is the famous, if you will, desolation of abomination of desolation, abomination that is made desolate. Christ at Matthew 24:15 answering the third question first and the three questions of Matthew of the three questions of Matthew 24:3. I said this last week because <coughs> I know I'm going to get to it again this week. Christ answers the third question first of the three questions of Matthew 24:3. <coughs> the third question is what is the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles? And he answers that first. Christ's answer is the tribulation. Is this this another one week. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and that includes uh, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Therefore, when you see the abomination that makes desolate. So in the middle of this week. I have the abomination. That makes desolate. And Christ refers to it in Matthew 24, 15. So I now know that he is aware of Daniel 9, 25 through 27. When you see what Daniel talks about, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination that makes desolate, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. In other words, when you see the prince that does this, standing in the holy place, he's speaking to the nation of Israel here. He says, flee to the mountains. So when you see this guy doing this abomination that makes desolate, run. Get out of Jerusalem. So Daniel 9.27 is a sign for the Jews. That's where Daniel talks about this abomination of desolation. It's a sign for the Jews in the tribulation to flee Jerusalem. To flee Israel and take refuge in the mountains. So more of that to come in the next few weeks, which might turn into a year. It's hard to tell with me. 
I should repeat something important with regard to 24.3, the three questions. Matthew does not record Christ's answer to the first question. He only refers, or he only gives us Christ's answer to the third and the second question. Nor does Mark give us the answer to the first question. Does Christ answer the first question? Yes, he does. But it's not in Matthew and it's not in Mark. What's the obvious question? What's going on? Luke does give you the answer to the first question. So in order to find the three, the answers to the three questions, which are not in order, you have to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why is that so? Why does the Holy Spirit force us to read all of the Bible to find the answer to the questions? Duh! Hopefully that is obvious. Okay, where was I? Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. So, got all that? Of course not. It's not that I have low expectations. I just have situational awareness. So here we go. Let me try again. If I have seven sevens, that would be seven times seven, and that would be equal to 49. Use your phones. (laughs) Then I have 62 sevens. That would be 62 times seven, wouldn't it? Again, you can... I'll help you. 434. Okay? And then I have one seven. This is the hardest one, somebody tell me. And then I have another seven. Now I didn't do this in order, so let me do it a, let me do it in order. Somebody will get confused. If you do all of this uh, correctly and you add it all up, um, oh, I'm, 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 I'm not, not doing well at all, am I? Let me start over again. I am easily confused now. If I take 7 times 7, that's 49. And 62 times 7, and I add them together, that's 434. What do I get? I get 483. And I add another 7, I would get 490. Does that make sense? So this is one of the 490s of which there are four. Now, here's where it gets fun. We math. If I have 483 years, and I multiply it by 360, what do I get? I get 173,880 days. Three hundred and sixty days in one year is a Jewish math calendar. Now keep in mind all of this, this this is where I'm headed, because this is what's important. I'm headed here because of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, comes to the prophet Daniel during Daniel's prayer. Daniel is praying for the nation of Israel, and the angel Gabriel comes to him. We should probably read that. 
So. We'll start here at Daniel 9.20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, began being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me. So Gabriel has come to Daniel. Gabriel also shows up where else in the New Testament. Work that out. Oh, Daniel, I, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. So Daniel does not understand what Daniel is writing. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out. So when Daniel began to pray for the people of Israel and confessed his own sin and the sin of the people of Israel, a command went out and the command went to Gabriel. And I have come to tell you that you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Seventy weeks. So this is dividing the 70 weeks up into one Seven and sixty-two, not necessarily that order. To finish the transgressions, to make an end to sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this is all about the most holy. Who's the most holy? I think that's obvious. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore. So this is a different command. Don't think it's the same command. I have two commands. One's a different from the other command. Two commands are not the same. One is a command to send Daniel. This is a different command. Now, therefore, know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Until Messiah, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Or 483 years. The streets shall be built again and the wall. Even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks. There's going to be another week. The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the princes who come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the, until the end of the war. The desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring it into sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So that's Gabriel. Okay, keep in the forefront another spinning plate here. That these statements by Gabriel to Daniel form the foundation of the vision of the certain man in uh, in linen in chapter 10, which is where we left off. And that's described as Christ is described. The certain man in linen is described exactly as Christ is described in Revelation 1, 10 through 17 and Daniel 10, 4 through 9. So... A certain man in linen looks just like Christ in Revelation 1, 10 through 17. 
A while back, your homework assignment, if you remember, was to identify the certain man in linen. Who is he? Okay. We have 173,880 days. That's 483, which is 69 sevens, times 360 is 173.880. And that was the Jewish calendar. Now we have the Gentile calendar. And I have 476 years times 365 days. Keep in mind that 360 is a Hebrew year. What is a Gregorian calendar year? 365 and a quarter. Let's just call it 365. Why do I have 476 years? That is equal to 173,740 days. Does not seem the same as 173,880 days. Anyone still awake on the bus here at all? Thank you for pretending. What am I doing? What is all of this stuff? I am calculating for you. That's absolutely right. Those of you who figured this out already, I, I know there's a few of you. I am calculating when the Messiah is going to be cut off. Because after 69 weeks, the Messiah is cut off. After the 62, but before the 62 is the 7. So after the 69, the Messiah is cut off. Does that make sense? I didn't do that very cleanly before. Because I'm what? That's right. goes without saying. 476 years times 365 days is 173,740. 173,740 plus 116 days is 173,856. And some of you mathematically inclined might protest because you're Protestants. And you might say, and you're muttering, I can hear you mutter. That 476 years divided by 4 is 119, but I only added 116. And so you're singing now, the religious professional is an idiot. That's, I can hear it. Careful there, Elvis. Because fools rush in in math. Three days have to be subtracted from 119. How come? Why do I have to subtract three days from 119 days? Of the 476 years and the 365, 476s. That should have dropped three of you right there. Because of what? Because of leap years, I have... 119 extra days, but I really don't have 119 extra days. I only have 116 extra days. 
Again, we are calculating when the Messiah will be cut off. Is anybody still awake? Anybody? McFly? How are we doing? Centennial years? How many centennial years do I have in 476 years? Centennial year, you would say, I have four. Why aren't you subtracting four from 119? I'm only subtracting three from 119 because centennial years are not a leap year. However, every 400th year is a leap year. Got all of that? Of course you don't. And that means I have to subtract three, not four, from 119 because of centennial years, and I end up with 173,856 days, which is the same as, no, it's not, 173,888 days, and I'm trying to get them to be the same. How many days off am I? Not much. Use your phone. 24 days. Well, that's great because... I know some of you will say the religious professional is an idiot. Again, you'll sing. We're 24 days short, baked potato breath, because of March the 5th to March the 30th. Now, this is in contest. You should know that. I'll get to that as time goes by. March the 5th, 444 B.C. In my opinion, people disagree with me. It's so sad for them. March the 5th, 444 B.C., Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, to March 30th, A.D. 33, It's 24 days. 24 days plus 173,856 is 173,880. Yay, me. They're the same. The Gregorian calendar and the Hebrew calendar are the same. They both add up to 173,880 days. So I now know when the Messiah was cut off. As Bill pointed out, this is, an, this is a prophecy in the Bible that is ridiculous. They actually could have figured out the exact day that Christ would be cut off using the Hebrew calendar. We can figure it out using the Gregorian calendar, not the Julian calendar. Not the lunar calendar. Know your calendars. It's important to know, remember it said back here, that uh, understand that, now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command there will be 173,880 days till the Messiah is cut off. And we know when the command was given, when I say we, I mean me, I have some other guys in there that back me up, and ladies. 
We believe that the command was given March the 5th, 444 B.C. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, as I said. I should note this because math is our friend. I have 1 B.C. and I have 1, or I have A.D. 1. Just stop with this common error nonsense, common era, era, B.C.E. Oh my goodness. How many years are between 1 B.C. and A.D. 1? If you answered two, you would be wrong. There is no zero. There's one year between the two. So you have to know that and you'll find people that go, 445 and 444, all kinds of problems. You have to understand 116, 119, 476 divided by 4 and all of this stuff in order to get it. Well, I'm, will there be a test? Yes. Oh, golly, yes. How could I turn that down? There are four decrees. So this March the 4th, 444 B.C. is chosen as it's the fourth decree. Let me explain that. Cyrus had a decree, 538 B.C. He said the Jews could return. Darius Darius had a decree, 520 B.C. And then we have Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the king of Persia, Iran today, right? 458 B.C., he had his first decree. But then the fourth decree, March the 5th, 444 B.C., that is the decree where he says you can rebuild the wall and you can rebuild the streets. And that's what it says. To restore and build in Jerusalem, the streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. The only decree of the four decrees is the March 5th, 444 B.C. decree by Artaxerxes. And we can start counting to 173, 880 from that date. And where do you think we end up? March 30th, 33 A.D. 8033. Artaxerxes, just as an aside, is the stepson of Esther. And he was an incredibly interesting king. And her influence is obvious, in my opinion. What is equally obvious is that what is necessary to understand the book of Daniel. Because what are we doing? Only the wise will understand the book of Daniel. That means we've got to be reading Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. That, that's all we've got to do just to get through maybe this chapter 9. Easy as cake, simple as pie. For today, all you need to know is 483 by 360 times 360 is 173,880. And 476 times 365 plus 116 plus 24 is 173,880. And if you use your phones, you're going to discover, as I said, lots of math with respect to what's called the prophecy of the 483 years, the 69 sevens. And much of that's going to resolve, I'm sorry, going to revolve around uh, whether or not this is the right date of, of the second decree of Artaxerxes or the fourth overall decree. Is it March 5th or Mar- to March 30th? Some will say March 14th to April 6th. Is it 444 B.C. or 445 B.C.? Or is it 33 A.D. or 32 A.D.? They don't really think they know. 
But they say they think they know. There's a difference. The point is... Yay! A point! Is the grandson completely asleep? Then I've done my job. Oh, he's downstairs. He's sleeping downstairs for the rest of the night. Is that Daniel 9, 24 through 27 establishes, this is the point, yay, a point. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 establishes the exact day that the Messiah would be cut off. What's the next problem we have right now? What does Christ mean? What does God, how does God define that term, cut off? Most people describe it as the crucifixion. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. It might be bigger than that, do you think? So 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes, his second decree... Again, Artaxerxes granted the Jews permission. This is the first decree of the four decrees that grants the permission to build the walls and the streets. That's when the clock starts. And when the clock starts, we just got to go 173,880 days from that decree. And then Christ would enter Jerusalem as king, the king of Israel. And you would know who he is because of the prophecy of Daniel. Is this the Messiah? And Daniel 9, 25 through 26 gave us the exact day. Zechariah 9, 9 said on the exact day that Daniel 9, 25 through 26 gave us, he would come on what? Do I have to read Zechariah 9, 9? Let me read it. So I have one guy told us the day. The other guy said... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. One gave you the day, the other gave you how he'd come in. And that's exactly what he did. He came on the 173, 880 days from the, the decree of Artaxerxes, the stepson of Esther, and he rode a donkey. In case you were wondering why he did that. You still don't know why he did that. All you know is he fulfilled that prophecy. Why is that prophecy a donkey? Why not an ox? He wants that donkey. He sends his disciples. Go find the guy that's got the donkey. That's my donkey. So you got lots of problems to solve there, which we will have to do in order to understand the book of Daniel. So there's your clock. Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, gave you the day and gave you how he would go. Luke 19, 41 through 42 records what he said about Daniel. So let's go to Luke 19. How's my time? Completely out of time. So we'll have to stop. You know better than that. Here's what he says. In, in, this is what Christ says. To the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because the disciples were saying, This is the king of the Jews. Remember, this all started with there's no king in Jerusalem, right? There's no king in Israel. 
Okay, you, we give you a king, but you don't want the Shekinah glory. You want a man to be king. Okay, the Shekinah glory becomes a man. The invisible is made visible. He adds humanity. And now he's come 173,880 days, exactly from the fourth decree of Artaxerxes, riding a donkey. And the disciples start saying, this is the king. And the Pharisees said, rebuke them. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep quiet, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. There's there we go again. We have all this weeping. Now, God is weeping over Jerusalem. Saying, if you had known, if you had known, even you, he says to the Pharisees, even you. Especially in this thine day, this thine day, you would have known that this is thine day. This is this thine day. I think the old King James gets it perfect. This is the day you would have been able to figure it out. But now this is hidden from your eyes. So he told them that this is the day of Daniel 9. And you should have known it, but it was hidden from them. The Messiah would come 173,880 days from the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls and the streets. Nehemiah, the cupmaster, was given the command. That started the clock, so we'd have 69 sevens. There'd be 483 of the 490 years. Messiah would be cut off again. We have to define the totality of cut off. And Israel would wait for the 70th seven. We would have this great parentheses. There'll be a last seven in the middle of that last seven. What's going to happen? The abomination that makes desolate. And the prince who comes shall destroy Jerusalem again. So I have this prince that's not the king. And I have the king. And Christ discusses the prince of Daniel 9.26. He does it in Matthew 24.15 and 16. As I think I've read that, we have read that, haven't we? Should probably read it again. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, you see him. It's not in there, but it's standing in the holy place. The abomination of desolation is a person. It's also an act. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he says that. He discusses it. Then he does it again in 844 of John. He says, he's talking to the uh, Pharisees again. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and come from God. Which means he is God. Now I have, because how do you come from God? Unless you are God. Now, have I come of myself? Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. This is the triune. This is the Elohim, the us. Why do you not understand my speech to my word? Because, essentially, you are not of God. They said they were of God. He said, you're not. You're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning. The beginning of what? And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks the lie, in the Greek it is the definitive. It is the lie. I'm running out of places to write things. We'll have to get rid of all this stuff. And listen, don't feel bad if you struggle to keep it straight. I struggle to keep it straight. But we'll practice together. Just as long as you get the major pieces. It's the lie. When you see the abomination of desolation, there's, those are definitives. They're addressing a person. When he speaks the lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is the liar and the father of it. He's the father of the it. We'll see this again in John 17. Oh, wow, I found a pen. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. But that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What scriptures? Daniel 9. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world that they may, they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word and the word has, the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil thing. You might say evil one, but his evil thing. The lie. The father of it, of the it, the son of perdition and the evil thing. All of those use the definitive article. The lie, the it, the son of perdition, the evil thing are all the prince of Daniel 9, 26 and 27, who is the abomination of desolation. And Daniel 9, 27 says when he, when he will come, gives you the exact day. He will come in the middle of the final seven, the 70th of the sevens. And the wise will understand because the 70th week is unsealed. The book of Daniel is sealed, but not the 70th week. It is completely unsealed. Where in your Bible is the unsealing of the 70th week? That is the book of Revelation. But only the wise will understand. So, this is an applicational sermon. Pick a side. You can pick to be wise, or you can pick to not be wise. The overwhelming Christendom is to be unwise. Not interested. Don't want to know the day. Don't want to know anything. Just make me happy. And I'll go home. But that's not wise. This is just the introduction. We'll go over it and over it and over it until you are so vomiting sick of it. But what will you be? That's right. You will be wise.